You said it would become a favorite. It just did. Isn't it good? It is so good. So, so good. And um, I'll answer my way. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than any of us can ask or even imagine. That always takes me out of my comfort zone because I, I stay safe normally. But I think we all know why this is a time in our world, in our lives, in our church to say, God, we believe that you, we're going to make way for you to do the impossible, the amazing, the wonderful. And it involves all of us. Praise God. Good morning, church. Go ahead and have a seat. And uh, thank you for leading us so beautifully in worship. Uh, Definitely. Um, I know you're thinking about things that are um, in your answer to the question, what, what does that mean to me? And uh, I hope you won't let that go quick. I hope you'll stay on that and say, God, you're the one that we just sang about. And uh, we're going we're gonna to follow you. We're not just going to pray it and move on. We're going to pray it and wait. And one of the postures we take in the McCracken family for several years now is this posture, which is, um, I had to ask Debbie when I first saw her with her hands, her palms up, and so what is, what is that? I know it's something personal and real, and it's just letting God lead the way. It's letting God have his way. And it's a posture of submission and humility and, and confidence in the, in the God that we just sang about, that uh, I don't want to be the guy in the way of what you can do, Lord. Amen? That's really a truth that I want us to live um, every way we can, uh, every day. Um, so I um, have a quiz for you. It's a one-question quiz. Okay, it'll be simple and easy, and besides, school's out for the summer, right? <laughs> uh, here's a quiz. Have you ever had someone not like you? That's only half the question. Just because you're you. You've, you've searched it out in your mind. You don't have a good answer. You play the tapes over in your head. You wonder, what did I do or not do that makes that person, unless I'm misreading their body language, their, uh, you know, silence is violence, right? That's a saying in communication circles. And, and you know, they, there's just this silence. It's creepy. It's weird. And you know, you at least intuitively sense it's against you. It's toward you. So what do you do with that? And, and then... Um, you might even go a step further. There's a, a real personal uh, part of that, the pain of not being liked. It's a follow-up question that you sometimes just ask yourself because uh, you got no one else to ask. Why me? I mean, they don't like me because of me. Why me? Um, I would submit to you that a growing number of Christians feel a little bit like that in the world we live in. 
you, you tell somebody you're a Jesus person and they're cautious in some cases. They're uh, trying to restrain a disdain in other cases. Um, or they're outright hostile. Uh, <clears throat> I, I've got some counsel that a father gave a son. And it's simple counsel, but I want to uh, state it out loud and then get your opinion on it. Okay, ready? Here it is. He said to his son, never start a fight, son. But if you have no other options, hit first, hit fast, and hit hard. <laughs> There's some awkward chuckles. Some are laughing out loud. I, I suspect that's the range of possible responses, right? Um, so I want you to know, if you're new to us here at Grace Point, I grew up in the Bay Area, and that was something of the unspoken language on the street in the 60s when I grew up there. Um, I, I was um, probably, uh, those words weren't from my dad, though they could have been. And, uh, and uh, that's how it went in the, in the streets, in our neighborhoods, in nearby cities. It was kind of a, um, you know, live or die. It was a fight or not see another day to fight at times. Keep in mind, it's in the 60s, and there was a revolution going on in a neighboring city called Berkeley. We knew it as Berserkly, but um, it, was, it was haywire. It was crazy. It was like, what's going on here? And I was a little kid and all that, grew up to be a middle schooler, and was almost daily in some kind of altercation. So my father could have coached me similarly with those words. Uh, don't go around picking fights, Steve. Be a finisher of fights. Not bad, counsel. Uh, this sets up a shocking, I think, and rather uh, disturbing piece of news. Since the day you became a friend of Jesus, let me stop myself before I finish this. Uh, I'm, I'm making an assumption that is likely not completely true, even here in the house, that there are some people that are kind of, uh, we used to call it tire kickers. You're not going to buy the car, but you're kicking the tires, checking it out. Maybe that's true for you in, when it comes to Jesus. You hear enough about him, you see a room full of people that somehow are here of their own volition, and they like what they see and hear, right? So, so I want to find out why they're, they keep coming. It's not a one and done. Some of you have been here longer than I've been here, which is a long time. So maybe you're live stream with us today, and you're, just, you're, you're one of those people. You just freely admit where you're sitting right now. Um, so when you become a friend of Jesus, what I'm about to say becomes true of you too. Uh, let me finish it. Since the day you became friends with Jesus, you have entered into a fight with someone who absolutely hates you. His name is Satan. So, it's true. Angels rejoice in heaven. Luke 15 tells us that when one 
sinner. I was one, you are one, and when we bow our knee and repent of our sin and turn to Jesus Christ, on that day at that moment, you can't hear it here, but there is a thunderous celebration in heaven because one sinner repented. Those are all words from Jesus, Luke chapter 15. That's really true. But what you also don't hear is someone that is seething in rage against you. It's true. Um, And he has not stopped and will not stop his efforts, frankly, to take you out. I told you it was sobering, kind of unsettling to some of us. Because some of us have almost come to a place where we're not quite sure there is a devil. And I won't even go down that path, but there's a whole lot of evidence that we have to explain if he doesn't exist. Okay, so, um, and like it or not, he's, he's not only picked a fight with you, he has declared all-out war against you. Not just because you're a man or a woman, but because you belong to someone that is his archenemy. And he is absolutely against Jesus in every way and will be. Uh, even to the day he's thrown into the endless pit of hell and sealed there forever. Amen? That day's coming, but it hasn't come yet. Which means he's loose. Okay. And that's true whether, as I said, you're a man or a woman. Whether... You're a brand new baby Christian, or you're a seasoned saint. You've been around Jesus and walked with him a long time. Here's one more. It's also not just true of pastors who are sifted frequently, but of every quiet Christian that just wants to mind his or her own manners and not get in anybody's way. It's, It's you because of who you belong to. Okay. Now, I need to state something that has me concerned as well. And that is that there are a fair number of people that aren't convinced what I said is true. You know, it is an invisible enemy in large part. Uh, And so you could be in the critic corner that says, ah, I'm not sure that's true. But intuitively, something says, that might, he might be on to something here. Okay, if you'll go that far with me on this. Um, the Bible actually uh, gives us a peek. I like to think of sometimes the, the curtain that is concealing something is pulled back. And for a moment, we get to go, wow. It's like, let's make a deal, only not in a happy way. Remember the show? I used to just pick always the right curtain, and they would not always get it. But, uh, you know, you sometimes see, and they, they go, here's your grand prize. You know? And it's like, wow, you know, and it's something really cool. Um, and um, only this is the opposite of that. So here's a primer for you as I begin the, the time we're going to spend in God's Word. I, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something and reach for your notes. Many of you do that instinctively when we get started. Reach for your notes and find a pen because 
I want you to write down rapid fire rather than uh, us turn to multiple scriptures. Some of these, most of these, in fact, thanks to my wonderful assistant, Judy, um, are at the bottom of the page uh, weekly, so you can quick reference them, circle them if that's the case, and you see a reference to one of them. So uh, here's my primer that points to Satan's end game. You say, well, what is he up to? What, just to mess with me? Is that all he's up to? And I, I think it's more than that. Satan's great goal, great goal, you can write this down, is to destroy your faith. Your faith. So follow this uh, trail, if you would, biblical trail here. Uh, faith is a uh, simple yet necessary element of salvation. Okay? The Bible says it this way, for by grace you have been saved by faith, uh, through faith. Grace is a simple word for saying, for by grace, for a free gift given to you that you don't deserve. That's grace. For by grace, and that applies to everyone, for by grace you have been saved, listen to this, through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is a gift from God, not as a result of your works so that no one not a man or woman no one can get to heaven someday and boast I'm here because I mean did you check the videotape get over it you won't be there doing that and neither will Billy Graham be there doing that or my dad or pick a saint you know somebody that just walked tall no they're the same way. It's a free gift. And it's through faith. It's something that you receive through faith. In fact, the New Testament, some 200 times, the word faith or belief is used. So it's ubiquitous. It's a big deal. It's on page after page in the New Testament. And it's essential for salvation. Here's a couple of passages. We're, we've been in Acts, so this will be familiar for you. Uh, they were in... Philippi, Philip and Silas, uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and things didn't go so well, and they get arrested and thrown into prison, and the prison guard is there to guard them, of course, and uh, not let them escape, and middle of the night, they, uh, you know, they, the angel comes, and they're about to break free, and this guy's hosed, He's, his days are numbered, because you don't let prisoners escape without paying for it with your life in those days. And this comes out of Acts chapter 16. The man sees that he's in a, the prison guard. I can't, I'm in serious trouble. And he asks a great question. What must I do to be saved? And Peter and Silas replied, first word, faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I'll stop myself again and plead with you. If you've never put that kind of faith, he wasn't asking for an academic answer to his question. It was life and death. If you have not responded to that, do it now, and it's that simple. So that's Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and following. Here's another one. This from Jesus. To those who believe, have faith in me, I gave them the right to become children of God. 
You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to do a bunch of good stuff. You don't have to attend church. You're not here because you're going to show an attendance record someday in heaven. Right? You just aren't. It's good that you're here because you're growing up. You're hearing more about this God that saved you. Okay, so that's in John chapter 1, verse 12, from Jesus. Uh, Here's a third one. This is sort of a verse or two that we share with people when they're considering taking that step of faith and saying, I've heard a lot about Jesus, or just a little, but I want to step forward in an embrace of him by faith. If you confess with your mouth, this comes out of Romans chapter 10, verses uh, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and faith, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Last three words are the best words you'll ever hear. You will, four words, be saved, right? So if you're here right now, earlier I asked and assume not everyone is, a follower of Jesus, but today you're saying, I just want, give me the simple step, pastor, there it is. You will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, he's real. What he did, what he said, it's real. Uh, You will be saved. So it's clear faith is really vital. It's not a hood ornament. It's the engine of the Christian life. With me? Okay. Um, so now it should come as no surprise that it it is um, something that Satan seeks to stop. And that's the work that God begins in a person's heart by giving them salvation or for them to be born again, as it's said in John chapter 3, okay? Um, and and I, I just sometimes just love a simple sentence by Jesus. And he gave us one in John chapter 10, verse 10. He said it this way, of the devil. He starts with him. He calls him the thief there, but we know it's the devil. The thief gives you an idea of his DNA, He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Let's pretend there's two aisles, okay? And you can get in aisle number one or aisle number two. The first aisle says, hey, come this way, and I plan to steal, kill, and destroy you. Jesus, There's a comma there. Jesus finishes John 10.10 and says, second aisle, but I came to give you life and abundance. How many want to be in the first aisle? You know, it's, you know, there's even people out there that'll mess with you. Oh, that's the aisle I'm on. I'm digging it, man. Steal, kill, destroy. It's my game. Okay. But of course we want the other. Jesus said, I came to give, in contrast to that, life, eternal life. And I'll give it to you abundantly. Meaning, not a, I'm not giving you a little crumb. You have my life. Um, That means, in a very real sense, and the devil greatly um, resists what you're hearing this morning. Um, So keep that in mind as we roll along here. But Christians from that point on are targeted. 
And that's the bad news. It really is, it's rough news. Uh, the good news is, you're not the first to fight this fight. That's why we've got a Bible. And you won't be the first to win this war. It's been won and won and won again. And that's nothing, I, my mission in life is nothing short of winning that war and staying strong and steadfast in the faith. So with that in mind, I want you to find your way to 1 Thessalonians. This is the passage we'll sit on for the rest of our time, uh, the short time we have each week, but this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 3, and um, as you're on your way there, it needs just a quick um, introduction. But we're going to meet ancient folks, everybody in the Bibles, long ago. These people lived two, a little over 2,000 years ago, okay? And they lived in a real place. Um, the, the Apostle Paul planted actually a church in this place, a city called Thessalonica. And it's in the ancient Greek world, the northern part of Greece, known as Macedonia. Okay, if you went there today, you'd see the Aegean Sea. It kind of goes this way. And you'd see Philippi over here in Ephesus and all these cool places. Come around here and up, the, up at the Horn, and you find places like Thessalonica, further south, Athens, Corinth, etc., etc., all in the Greek world. Okay, so that's, that's the place where Paul planted this church. And he wrote this letter to these young Christians that filled the ranks of this brand new church in Thessalonica. This is his second missionary journey. And he, he, um, he writes this letter um, after being chased out of the city. Hopefully you're asking why. Because Jews in the city did not appreciate his comments about Jesus. Remember, they had rejected Jesus. And so this doesn't work for them at all. The the message of Jesus as the savior of the world. So, um, and he writes them to encourage their baby Christians. I want you to, don't forget that. They're, they're brand new Christians. One of the earliest letters, by the way, in the New Testament, Thessalonica, or Thessalonians, first and second, written just a little bit apart from each other. Turns out they were being persecuted already. So Paul, the guy that started this mess in the local Jewish communities, minds has left we chased him out of town but the people that he reached with this good news simple news of the gospel they're there and they're they're actually thriving and and there was a hostility against them and the guy driving it all is the devil himself this is this is hard stuff for for anyone much less young believers baby christians it's hard to handle. So given that such things will likely be faced by all who are Jesus' people, the darker our world gets. I, I just found myself freshly encouraged by what we're going to read now. And actually, I'm going to start at verse 17 of chapter 2. Okay, so Paul's words, Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you, interesting way to say it, we were driven out of town, running for our lives. 
There's a, we had to leave quick, orphaned, by being separated from you for a short time. He's hoping it's a short time in person, but not in thought. Isn't that great? Every word here is cool. He's saying, yeah, we, they drove us out of town, but we have not stopped thinking about you. And you'll see more in a second, praying for you. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Watch this. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, he's putting it in first person singular terms. I, Paul, did again and again, but something came up. How does the verse end? Satan blocked our way. I don't know what that looks like. I, I hope you're like me. You look at something like that and you go, what did that look like? Was it a physical manifestation of the devil? I suspect not. Whatever it was, Paul was not, this is not hyperbole. He's not making it up. He's saying there's an opposition here that opposed my efforts, my longing to do more than think about you and pray for you, but there. Be there and present with you. What a great heart. Then chapter 3 begins. So when we could stand it no longer, this longing to be with you, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. That's where he landed. So we sent Timothy, who's, a, who's our brother, co-worker in God's service, spreading the gospel of Christ. We sent him for this purpose, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by this trial or these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for these trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you this. What I'm telling you right now is not new. We kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, he repeats himself. I sent to find out about your faith. There it is again. It's in play. Why? Because it's at risk. I was afraid that in some way, he calls him here, the tempter, had tempted you and that our labors were poof, in vain. Now stop just for a second. Let's just summarize in a sentence. This is persecution. Um, intense difficulty. You put it in language that works today. Okay? Intense difficulty is a serious threat to a Christian's faith. It is a time when you see somebody go through a crisis where the, the, the tree is bending. The, the faith core is quaking. Don't, don't, don't ask, assume. Assume it's true. And then the rest of the counsel here that we're going to read about makes tons of sense. Because Paul doesn't just speculate he not only sees it and calls it what it is but he has a wonderful response paul knew from the hostilities le he left behind that when he fled from there 
these young Christians would be in the crosshairs of Satan's attack. And that's still true today. Um, this fact stated a lot more. So let's do what we just did and give you a couple other passages. He mentions Timothy. This is, I told you, early 50s. Later in his life, another 15 years or so, he's saying goodbye and ready to go home and see Jesus. And his last two letters are written to a young man who's mentioned here, Timothy, verse 2. Timothy had grown up and matured. And Timothy was now ready to step into his shoes. There was a succession going on between Paul and Timothy. And he tells Timothy in two letters, first and second Timothy, the last two Paul ever wrote that are in our Bible. And he tells Timothy some things. Chapter 6 of verse of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says this to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Remember we talked about fights at the beginning? He links it directly with a fight for your faith to hold on. Fight the good, and he calls it a good fight. It's worth everything you've got. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Here's a second one, and this comes at the end of his last chapter of his last book, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He says, looking back, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And I'm heading home to the one who gives crowns, not only to me, but to all who look forward to the promise of his return. The, the, the rest of the, the faithful, people like me, people like you. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Here's a third one. This comes from Peter. You're familiar with these words because because we quote them often, but Peter tells us that Satan has this certain quality like a roaring lion. Be of sober spirit, he said, and be on the alert for your adversary, the devil, prowls about as a roaring lion on the hunt, seeking whom he may devour. But resist him, now listen, firm in your Faith. Shore up your faith. Hold on tightly. It does matter. It does have consequences. So resist him standing firm in your faith. John uh, adds uh, what we often experience. This is our victory that you overcome the world by your faith, by your faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Paul acknowledges, however, that not all keep the faith. That's, that's, that's the kind of sobering piece that has to go with this today. I'm not guessing numbers, but I'm guessing some. We'll hear all of this and other pleas to hold on to their faith, and they'll let go of it. Paul says... In 1 Timothy chapter 1, don't reject faith and sh suffer shipwreck like Hymenaeus and Alexander. In other words, people in that day and people in our day, there are some who will suffer shipwreck in their faith. So 
So I'm giving you a broad scattering this morning, but um, concerned that the Thessalonians might give up on their faith, I want you to imagine the relief he must have felt when he got word back from Timothy. Let's pick up at verse 6. Timothy has just now come home, come back to us, from being with you and has brought good news about, there it is again, your faith. Your faith. You can just imagine when they arrive. There's so much in this statement. He's told us that you always, always have pleasant memories of us and that you, that you long to see us just like we long to see you. Verse 7, therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were, we were encouraged. We were encouraged because of what we heard about your faith, verse 7 ends. You're staying on. You're hanging tough. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Prompting what follows a prayer. Verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply Great statement here. If you're circling things in your Bible, circle this. Supply what is lacking in your faith. Remember, they're baby Christians. They've got some room to grow, wings to fly, but they're not there yet. So he's praying for them. He's several cities removed from them and not welcome to come back. So he says, we, we pray all the time for you that we may see you again and supply what's lacking. In other words, keep building you up, keep growing you, keep teaching you. So now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. Wow. I, I, I don't know if you're in the practice of doing this. I would suggest it if you have never done this. Just Google it. Paul's prayers. The Apostle Paul's prayers. And they will take Somebody's going to guide you to a list of prayers that are actually recorded. I don't know if you're in the habit of recording your prayers. From time to time, I've done that. But it's really cool that they're recorded by Paul and kept for our sake in the Bible, for our benefit. And I think there's good truth in them. We would call it theology. Good information that actually is worth emulating. For those of us that have people in our lives that we're concerned about, that we want to see flourish in the faith, but we're not sure it's happening. You know anybody like that? We all do. We love them, but we're not sure what to do and how to help them. Let's just break it down real quick because Paul's praying for that. Same thing we might do for young Christians that we know or for struggling Christians. They're brand new in their faith or, or for our people, our children and our grandchildren. This is good stuff. This is, so he prays three things. The first thing he prays for is in verse 10. Look back at verse 10. 
Pray that people's faith might mature, is how I would word this. Night and day, we prayed most earnestly that, that, that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Let's just start with the obvious. This was not an occasional prayer. Oh, Lord, I just remembered so-and-so and wanted to, you know, throw this idea your way. No, he says night and day, right? And he uses the word earnestly. That's intentionality. There's a constancy here. That's a, this is on my heart and my knees show it. I'm on my knees before you, God, and I'm saying night and day, most earnestly. Please help. Please cause their faith, which is lacking, not because necessarily of choice, because they're, they're young. They're, they're not weather tested yet. And so we keep praying it because we know, we know, we've been walking with Jesus for a while, that the battle, oh yeah, it rages on. So I'm going to lift them up. I'm going to do it often. I heard this expression once. I think it's worth repeating. Faith that isn't tested can't be trusted. Some of you are getting there. Think of your trials. Maybe it's a new view of what you're going through. Huh. Because my faith's involved there. It's for real. And it's ongoing. And it's no less hard. It's being tested. You know the promise of that? You know the outcome of that? You can trust it. It's being tested. I've been called a steer in a blizzard. I think it's a compliment. I don't know. But it's that, it's that dumb steer that just stands there and looks straight into a horizontal snow and goes, Not going to blink. Not going away. No one told me to move. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> I have to, uh, Twilight Paris had a song called The Warrior is a Child. I was that guy. I looked strong and tough and mighty and powerful. And I was a, I was a weak baby at times and I wanted to run and hide so for a while I faked it but, but there's something inside me today that's different it's a faith that's strong you think of a trial you've gone through and you were going to ta be taken over by that it's going to wreck you who did you go to somebody whose faith had been tested, right? And you went to them because it can be trusted, right? Every one of us has, I got chills everywhere when I tell you that. It's true. You go to that person that they have been young and now they are old, Psalm 37, and they have never seen the righteous forsaken. 
Because right now you feel forsaken. And you go to them because they are the, they're the steer in the blizzard. And this blizzard's about to take you out. We've had a great study about James, um, both from this pulpit and in our men's table talk every Saturday morning. About to wrap up, and we're thinking of doing it again. Is that right, John? A third time. So it's, uh, but the, the, the book, the five-chapter book in the Bible begins, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials. What comes next? Knowing that the testing of your faith is producing a maturity, pro- producing a trusted faith. So ask yourself the question, what trouble creates for me a crisis in my faith? Could be, could be your family relations, your health, your finances, why not, why not just pray this way based on this moment with God? Why not pray, God, don't take that trouble away. But mature me as my takeaway. I've seen that. I haven't always done that. I've seen that in people. And I won't embarrass them. They're in this room. There's examples of that around all of us. Here's the second focus of Paul's prayer. Pray that that the love of your people abounds. Look at verse 12. We read it already. May the Lord make you your love increase and overflow for each other, for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Times of suffering, here's why you pray that. Times of suffering can tend to dry up expressions of love. It's true. It's a side effect. Instead of being others-focused and extended suffering, we become self-absorbed, which I think explains Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 12, because of the increase in lawlessness, an increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. These people were going through it. Some of you are going through it. And I don't think Jesus is making it up. might be harder to reach out from there to express your love. And Paul counters that by saying, I'm, I'm praying that your love would increase and overflow. For each other and for everyone else, including the people that are mistreating you. They're in there. Just as ours is overflowing. And then thirdly, don't miss verse 13. It's such a cool prayer, and it's prayer for self and for anybody else on your list. Pray that your people would live blameless and holy lives. May he strengthen your heart so that you would be blameless It's a Jesus move. It's a Holy Spirit result in your life. And the holy, uh, that you would be blameless and holy in the presence of our God when we stand before him. This is an important clarification at the end. 
He did not say that you would be sinless. I did not read that here, and I don't think it's a correct translation if you happen to have one that says, well, it's in my Bible. It's not. It's not a good one. That he would be, that you would be blameless, meaning when you sin, you'd get things squared away right away. Ain't no blame sticking on me. Does that mean you're saying you're sinless? No. It means I blew it like three or four times this morning, this week. I don't know, whatever. But I I stopped in my tracks because the Holy Spirit said, don't go further. Fix it. And then I fix it. Confess my sins. He's faithful and just. Forgive me for my sins, 1 John 1, 9, and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. There is therefore now no condemnation among those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Done. And I'm cleansed. And I'm blameless. That's not only a Bible idea. I read these words. I think it's well stated. We are only one small step away from the first step in a series of steps that could lead to our ruin. You know what happens? When you mess up and don't fess up, you begin to rot on the inside. There is a consequence. You say, well, now I've kind of forgotten about it. Your soul hasn't. Neither has the Holy Spirit. He's trying to get your attention. The door's shut right now. Open it. Because he's got some cleaning to do. He, knew, he wants to do a deep cleaning in you. Um, one more thought that's a footnote to all this, but it kind of weaves its way starting back in chapter 2 where we began and ends here in chapter 3. Uh, don't limit your spiritual concern for those you're praying for. Listen to me. I know some of you are going, well, that's not limited. Yeah, it is. Don't limit your concern. I mentioned kids, grandkids, people you love. Don't limit it just to prayer. Um, be willing to, my sleeves are short today, roll up your sleeves and get in it. He prayed for mature faith. Verse 10, right? That's what he's praying for. He prayed for abounding love. Those are things you keep praying for day and night fervently. We've covered that. And keep praying for blameless living in those people. It's a great outline for how to pray. But don't miss what he might want you to have a hand in. In praying for and rolling up your sleeves in those you're praying for. Look at verse 17 that we started with. When we were orphaned by being separated from you for a, for a short time, uh, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to pray for you. No, to see you. And we couldn't see you, so we've been praying like crazy ever since. You see it there? You see it in verse uh, 13. Flip across 
or uh, verse 17, flip across to verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts, that's a prayer, to be blameless and holy, okay? That's a longing for you, and this is the one that wants to come see you again. Verse 10 tells us. That's why I often remind people sometimes in our men's prayer group, but other, other people as well, they say, you know, I'm praying. I'm just praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. And I say, um, that's so awesome. Sounds like you've been doing that for a while. I have. But have you picked up the phone as well? Some cases you can't. But it might be a new thought. As you pray, to ask the Holy Spirit if he has some kind of hands-on part for you to play. Comma. And leave the results to God. I'd like you to bow your heads this morning with me. <clears throat> we are a people, Lord, that like feel-good facts and information. And today is an example of that. There's some really good feel-good moments. But to get to them, we've got to face a fight. We've got to face the battle. We've got to face the reality that's um, something that seems so harsh and, and hard. We've got a lot is riding on this, and we want to be up to the task. We want to be people who are... Um, aware of the battle and the fight and aware of the victory that you intend for your people. So God, today we come to you asking you to help us pray like we've seen modeled today and still even after doing what you might tell us to do leave the results to you. I love you, Lord, and I, th I thank you that you're at work in so many ways, and I pray that we would not give up, but keep praying for outcomes that would bring you glory. In your wonderful name we pray.